Hello, welcome back to the Baker's Cup, your favorite podcast where we talk about fantasy, sci-fi, pop culture, stories, whatever else. We have been uh, on a little hiatus the past two weeks, two weeks, um, selling a house. And as you can tell, I had started actually filming with uh, the bookshelves behind me and then a, a plain black backdrop to give it a more studio-esque look with different lights. Uh, that is currently not able to be done. Um, <clears throat> there's actually boxes right down here. All these books uh, probably tomorrow morning are going to go into said boxes. And this will most likely, well this and the Sunday special for this week, will most likely be the last videos filmed in this particular office space. Moving to a new house, there's going to be a new office space. It's going to be great. Um, some upgrades coming for that. Light is kind of crazy, isn't it? Some upgrades coming for that, and some upgrades and different things right around the corner for other exciting projects about to burst forth to life uh, as soon as that particular hassle is over. I'm sure most of you that are listening know, but buying uh, or selling a house and moving to another place, and especially when you have kids and pets and stuff, is just becomes a nightmare. Um, especially also given the real estate market. So, sorry about the delay in uh, the past two weeks, but I'm back. I am uh, author Nick Langan, your host, and we got a good one today. I'm going to talk about the Sandman. The good, the bad, the ugly. But first, as always, a shout out to our sponsors over at Plus 5 Charisma. Plus 5 Charisma. Head on over there, get yourself a and d or nerd-themed t-shirt. <clears throat> or hooded sweatshirt. Plus five charisma. Uh, get the druid one, for sure. Yeah, druid. You can head over to plus5charisma.com. Support a good business that supports us. And maybe I'll have to come up with some more completely absurd commercials to give plus five charisma at the beginning of the show. But again, I've been a little busy with moving. So, one of the benefits to... Not having done the show the past couple weeks, I actually got to watch The Sandman when it came out on Netflix. It was released uh, August 5th, which is, uh, man, what's today? It's the 17th now? Uh, the 17th when I'm filming this. It'll be the uh, 20th when the episode premieres. Um, filming ahead of time a little bit, a little bit more ahead of time than I usually do, given the movie situation. But um, for those of you that don't know, the Sandman is based on a long a long running comic series written by Neil Gaiman, uh, starting I believe in '89 and uh, going for I want to say something like 75 issues somewhere around there. Um, there's been a whole bunch of of other media and stuff around this. But it's interesting because it was through DC comic books um, and it uh, yes so I'm, I'm looking at it right now. The original series ran for 75 issues. I believe there's been other things made since then on it. I have read and I'm actually rereading the original comic series. I have read several volumes of them before. Uh, I haven't read everything associated with it. But <clears throat> it uh, it's interesting because it was a DC comic book, but it was very different at the time because 
the premise of the Sandman is that it follows Morpheus or Dream or the Sandman as he's referred to, and he is one of the endless, this sort of godlike beings that control certain aspects of reality or the human condition. And so Morpheus is the Lord of Dreams. He rules over everyone's dreams. He has a realm of dreams. And uh, his sister is death. There's desire. There's despair. These sort of embodiments of either primal driving factors or things that govern our lives. And it follows, uh, no, no real spoilers here, but the series and the show begin with him being imprisoned by a cult. And this causes a lot of problems for humanity and the dream realm. And uh, so the first thrust of the comic series is him setting a lot of that right. Similar to the show. Um, the first five episodes of the TV show very, very faithfully adapt the first, uh, I want to say the first six episodes of the show adapt the first six or seven issues of the comic pretty faithfully with a few changes, which we, we will talk about because that's interesting. But So it's a different sort of thing because you're dealing with, it's really modern myth. From, um, Neil Gaiman is a very prolific author. He's written a whole bunch of stuff over the year, over the decades. Novels, comics, movies, uh, TV, adaptations of a lot of his stuff have been made. There was an adaptation of his his book, American Gods, uh, which I have not read or watched. I, I know a lot of people love the book. I know that the TV show got kind of mixed results. Um, <clears throat> his, there was a movie, uh, Stardust, that came out, I want to say, in the mid-2010s, maybe. Um, <clears throat> that's pretty fun. That's like a fun fantasy romp. Uh, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty enjoyable. That's got, uh, that's got a hilarious subplot of a group of sons to a, to an evil king who are all trying to ascend to the throne and they're constantly backstabbing each other and, and yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, so he's had a, a wide influence on a lot of the culture, lots of fantasy writing. He's written some stuff with Terry Pratchett. I mean, this is a very impressive resume. I'm not going to get into all of it, but Sandman <clears throat> at the time has had some very dedicated, and well, and since the time has had some very dedicated fans. I remember reading it and enjoying it and rereading it. Now I'm enjoying it more, uh, being a bit, a bit older, but, and, um, it's just a different thing, and I've talked about this on the on the podcast a little bit, but I'm kind of tired of, of, I think a lot of people are feeling this way, I'm kind of tired of typical superhero things right now. Superhero films and stuff are going kind of the way of the, the Western. It used to be like everything is a Western, and then it kind of died out. And I, I foresee something similar happening with superhero films where we're going to go through a period, <clears throat> I don't know, in the next 10 years, where that stuff's going to die off a lot, I think, just because people are kind of played out with it. The Marvel movies did their thing up through Endgame. They've been really struggling to continue after that. DC has had some pretty good movies, but then some <laughs> just real bombs. And it'll be interesting to see what they do going forward with some of the stuff, them canceling Batgirl and whatnot. Um, but I think, and then and then just the absolute just overload of, of like Marvel TV shows now. 
setting aside the fact that maybe I disagree with some of the messaging that's being forced in some of these things, that's kind of a separate issue. But I think just the fatigue of having so much stuff on like a an assembly line or conveyor belt of um, never-ending content where we don't really get meaningful stories. It's just sort of the next piece of content has to be produced. I, th I wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot of that. So I'd expressed that I was excited. This was one of the things I was excited for coming out. And overall, I will say right off the bat, I really enjoyed the show. I think, for the most part, much in the way that the Lord of the Rings movies tackled the adaptation of the books and kept true to the heart and soul of those books even if they had to remove a lot of stuff because Tolkien's work is just so expansive. Similarly, the Sandman TV show, for the most part, I thought adapted those first couple storylines pretty well to, to the screen. It was always said to be sort of an unfilmable project. It's, it's different, obviously. You're, you're dealing with this sort of mythological figures. <clears throat> There's not a whole bunch of big action set pieces per se in the way that uh you know your next batman or spider-man movie you're gonna have and there's just so much weird imagery and sort of abstract thing because ultimately the sandman is really a story examining stories and so <clears throat> excuse me the um the comic book series felt like this sometimes, and the the TV show feels like this sometimes, and that it can feel very episodic. Gaiman, as a writer, does this with a lot of his stuff. He'll just sort of meander because he's interested in whatever, and he'll take this detour in this side character or something, and you're reading it, and you're thinking, okay, is this important? And maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but a lot of times it's just... He just liked that thing, and he just wanted to explore it, and so he did. And he's Neil Gaiman, so he can he can get away with it, right? Much the same way that, like, uh, and it's not just him, actually, like, but that's something that he's kind of become known for. And The Sandman, I think, as an anthology is uh, very, or feels very much like an anthology. There are sort of these overarching uh, storylines and you know, plot lines that loosely tie together with with certain things, but the, the because it's a it's a it's a story about storytelling, the importance of dreams, literal and figurative, and it deals with that. And also because you're dealing with a main character in Morpheus who is, uh, well, they're called the Endless, right? So he is this ancient. Maybe he's always been around. Maybe he'll always be around. Sort of being. It's, um, you know, you'll see him through the ages sometimes. We'll see flashbacks or, or things back. So, overall, I would say I really enjoyed it. It is weird. And there are some aspects of non-traditional storytelling that are, I think, for the most part, employed pretty well. <clears throat> I will say all of the acting is, is top-notch. The standouts for me are... Tom Storage as Morpheus, Gwendolyn Christie's Lucifer I really enjoyed, and uh, David Thewlis as Dr. John D. I think he may be 
my favorite character in um, in the first season. But all the acting is good. Um, they're... Yeah, overall, I recommend the show. So, that out of the way, we're going to some light spoilers. I'm not going to spoil a bunch of stuff, but just certain things. So, the premise to the show is the same. There's a cult. They are actually seeking to imprison death. And because um, the head of the cult, the sort of wizard magus, I think they call him, he has lost a son and he wants to capture death and bargain with her to bring him back. And they, they get it a little bit wrong and they capture dream instead. And then the cold holds dream. They, they take his belongings. So he has these three sort of items that are important and powerful to him. He's got a Ruby, a bag of sand and this kind of weird bone mask, which is cool. They take his stuff and the cult ends up imprisoning him with magic and stuff for like a hundred years and all sorts of stuff is going wrong. In the meantime, the dream world is falling apart. People are having trouble, like sleep troubles, either can't go to sleep or falling asleep. And, and, and the, uh, the magic has played, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but it's the actor that was, uh, Tywin Lannister in game of Thrones. There's some game of Thrones crossover here, him and, uh, Gwendolyn Christie who played Brienne of Tarth. So <clears throat> when, Morpheus gets out at the end of the first episode and he's like, all right, I got to get my stuff back and I got to repair my realm. And that is sort of the overarching story of the first five episodes. And in my opinion, this show, it's 10 episodes total. The first five felt like pretty tight, almost flawless television. It was very well done and efficient in the character introductions it was very well handled. The fact that you're dealing with a lot of very abstract concepts. And it did a good job. And there was a contained story arc. And so John, Dr. John D becomes one of the main antagonists. But, but he's a very sympathetic in a lot of ways. And almost fragile antagonist. David Thewlis is a really great actor. And so he brings this very, he's just likable. You just like the guy, you feel bad for him. But he is absolutely committed to bringing about truth and no lies. And so he he uses some, some of the things, maybe, that he obtains magical items, maybe some from the Sandman, to try and bring this new world about. And that storyline sort of, comes to a head in episode five and it's satisfying i thought for the most part and very accurate again like i said to the comics and um so i think that i kind of judge them separately that like it feels like that's even though it's only five episodes that feels like one season of tv right there you've got some other things going on you introduce some other side characters but that is you've got a main villain that you're focusing on for those times You've got a dream has an, uh, a quest that he's going about and and then it's resolved. Episode six, then we meet death, his 
sister, and it's sort of a standalone episode, but it's it's very well done and very moving, and it explores dream throughout the ages as he he goes with his sister and she's collecting souls. And I really appreciate the personification of death is actually very friendly and loving and caring, empathetic. I think that that is really clever and done well. There's been some interviews where, where Gaiman said his inspiration was he wanted to imagine what kind of death he would want to meet when it's it's his time to die. And that's what he put on the page. And even though death is ra- uh, different, uh, different ethnicity in the TV show from the comic, which raised some eyebrows, I still think the portrayal of, of her and the, the essence of her character was, was very well done. Um, then you get into, and so six is kind of a standalone thing. There's a few minor hints at the next plot line. And then seven and eight for me, where you're really trying to set up the second plot line of the season, I guess, because one through five is pretty contained. And there are some characters introduced in that first part that then are trying to do things in, in the second half. But seven and eight really slowed down for me a little bit, and I felt like they were decent, but not nearly as good as one through six. Um, <clears throat> there's some other things. There's another threat, another character that's been sort of a threat in the first five is now bumped up to one of the main antagonists. And there was just a lot of dragging and certain things I thought were not as strong. It was still enjoyable. I still watched it. I, I never was like, oh, I'm going to turn this off. But it just didn't feel nearly as well done as the first five but then nine and ten pick up and for the most part finish strong i thought with some really interesting choices some really moving moments uh, some other good characters and i will say that the defeat of the sort of main antagonist for the second half was not nearly as satisfying to me as the resolution of the john d storyline I think that it was just a little bit lacking it was it was too easy one of the one of the things is you end up kind of with the Superman problem in that dream is so powerful compared to normal people that you're not gonna have a bunch of sort of fist fights right and so you have to be clever with other things uh, but they do it well in certain episodes so then, I just felt like the resolution of that plotline in episode 10 with him confronting one of the antagonists is just kind of was a little lacking. It, I wanted a little bit more, especially because we we like that antagonist too. Um, Boyd Holbrook, I believe, is the actor playing the Corinthian who is a nightmare that has escaped the dream realm and sort of pacing about the waking world in, as a serial killer. Uh, so... Overall, I'd probably give the series maybe a 7.5, 8 out of 10. Um, if I were to divide it up, I'd say the first half of the series is like a 9 out of 10. The second half is like 6 up into an 8. So, still, still pretty good. Um, but it's interesting, and I just wanted to talk about so, of course, I'm going to give my recommendation. Hey, check it out, especially if you're into fantasy, sci-fi, that kind of thing, and you're looking for something new. It's a classic story. There's some really great acting. There's some really great moving moments. There's some there's some pretty spectacular visuals for a Netflix show as well. 
there's been other Netflix adaptations that have been really lacking in the visual department, but this is good. The writing is, is good. The dialogue is, is good. I can't think of a, I can't think of any lines of dialogue or anything where I was just like, Oh my gosh, that was rough. And especially, like I said before, you're dealing with just such abstract material that it's really impressive that they're able to make it relatable. I think a large portion portion of this, as a side note, is that Gaiman is actually an executive producer on the show, and I think he wrote the first episode, the pilot episode. So, letting the creator, who created something successful in the comic that was beloved, stay on and help with the adaptation and have a hand in that and have a lot of control is, is a smart move, I think, and, and hopefully we'll see more of that going forward. There used to be sort of the attitude, uh, particularly in the old... Hollywood and TV system, and I say old, but I mean maybe even 10, 20 years ago, which is not that far, that when you're a writer, if you write a comic or a, a book, that generally Hollywood just wants to buy the rights to that thing and then get rid of the author, right? They don't want the author involved in the project. Oh, this person's going to show up and pester me, or, or how are they going to react to us changing their their art? And I get it to some extent because... There can be, depending on what it is, great differences in in the mediums, right? And a book is very different from a film or a TV show. However, I also think that, and we've touched on this in this show a bunch of times, if you really want an intellectual property, a story that was told in print and prose or comic form, but then you're going to change everything about it. You're setting yourself up for failure. Um, personally, even though I'm not a huge expert on the Wheel of Time, but halfway through the first book, and I think compared to the first book, the, the TV show on Amazon is an abject failure. I think it's pretty clear that the Lord of the Rings show is going to be a failure. They wanted the name recognition of those properties to get people to watch, but then they have to destroy those properties because they don't agree with in some cases they don't even it's not even the the political message that those properties spout it's just the lack of their particular political messages that they want to put into it so i mean that's kind of what you're seeing with lord of the rings like i don't think that tolkien's work is really political at all it deals with massive themes but because it doesn't actually tackle diversity and because it's not an accurate reflection of the world we live in today, as these people see it, then they have to change it to make it an accurate representation, which is something that I hate. If you're going to tell a historical story, tell the historical story, warts and all. If you're going to tell a fantasy story that's based on history, then tell the fantasy story. Um, the, or actually, we're going to get into that in the Sunday special a little bit, but there's a series of books that when I first got back into reading fantasy a couple years ago, it was, one of the first newer books that I picked up and read, The Rage of Dragons. And it's a mixture of medieval fantasy and traditional African culture. And it's awesome. And guess what? It's populated by races that are based on African culture. So ain't a whole lot of white dudes running around. Not a whole lot of people that look like me running around in The Rage of Dragons. I actually don't think there's any. And it didn't bother me in the slightest because I accepted... It's it's well written. I accepted the premise. Hey, uh, this is a story set in this ge but based on an area, or an area based on rather. Sorry, this geographical area in the real world, and so everything's going to kind of stem from that. Everyone's going to appear to be sort of 
fantasy versions of Africans. Don't get too upset if I read a good Black Panther story or what have you and they know a bunch of white dudes running around Wakanda because it's set in a fictional version of Africa. I get that. Similarly, if I read something like Tolkien or anything else where it's set in a sort of fictionalized version of medieval Europe, don't get too upset if there aren't a whole lot of minorities or other races running around because that would be accurate for the time. You'd have a bunch of pasty guys that look kind of like me. Um, <clears throat> side note. But the point being, I think it was smart to let Gaiman, who's a very talented creator anyway, still have a hand in the project and I think that mostly then successfully translates his heart for the story into the adaptation. And therefore, you're going to keep a lot of what people loved about the comic. And so you're going to get people, you're going to please the fans in a lot of ways. And, and then because it's good and it's visual, you're going to bring in other people that are going to like it when they see it for the first time. So uh, much like Amazon succeeding with uh, not Jack Reacher. Uh, the Terminal List with uh, James Reese. Um, Netflix here actually has a decent adaptation that I liked, and uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. However, there are a few issues aside from just the the disparity of pacing. I just want to address real quick. Um, there were several complaints because certain characters were race or gender swapped for from the comic to the f television adaptation. Now. I, it doesn't necessarily bother me when that happens, just in and of itself, but it depends on the reason. So, in the first season of Sandman, they run into, I should say, in the first comic run of Sandman, the first, uh, it's either the second or third issue, I think, he runs into John Constantine, who is another character in DC Comics, there was a movie with Keanu Reeves years ago that is actually kind of fun in its own right, but is not really accurate to the comic. But basically, John Constantine is this train wreck of a human being, but he deals with the supernatural in a very comic book and filmy way. Um, but so, you know, conducting exorcisms, dealing with Lucifer, he's this sort of trench coat wearing, almost based on a private eye, but he deals in the supernatural. Okay. So they switched that and they had it Joe... Joanna or Johanna Constantine, sorry, Constantine, and people were kind of up in arms about this. So it turns out that HBO, I think, is in the works of developing, maybe with Netflix or maybe for HBO, but probably for HBO Max, I'm not sure, these things, deals, whatever. They're working on developing their own John Constantine show, and so Netflix couldn't get the rights to use that character because no that makes sense because HBO does a majority of the DC stuff they're sort of in partnership with DC and so apparently HBO has the rights to Constantine and Netflix didn't so they ended up bringing in and switching it to be Joanna Constantine who is also a character in the comics from a different time period but still so when I read that I was like okay well this makes sense to me because this is a legitimate practical reason to switch this character around, right? I mean, they, they, they can't. Their hands are bound. The rights... And this sort of happened to Marvel before Disney started coming in like stormtroopers and just buying everything up and taking over everything, is, you know, they had sold off the rights to a lot of their characters. So, like, that's why Fox has, or had, I think that's changed recently, the rights to the X-Men, and they were making the X-Men movies, and they were trying to crank them out so they could keep the rights because there's certain things in these contracts about, oh, you got to make a certain amount of movies a year and blah, blah, right? But then 
uh, or Sony had Spider-Man. Um, that was such a big deal when they work out that deal for the Tom Holland Spider-Man to be in Civil War. So for the for, for them to switch it to a different, for, for a woman instead of a man, but a woman character who is actually in the comics and just kind of swap that out, it doesn't bother me at all, right? Uh, it's a it's a legitimate reason. Um, they want they have everything else in place to make the show. They're like, yeah, we're going to do this, but we can't get the rights to this guy, and for the foreseeable future, we're not going to be able to get the rights to this character. Okay, cool. But <laughs> but then Neil Gaiman came out and uh, he issued a statement or made a tweet or something and said, well, we switched it to Johanna Constantine because I wanted it to be as diverse and representative as possible. So I wanted to, to, to be a woman, to be a woman. Okay, so, I mean, this just brings up several questions. This is kind of like J.K. Rowling saying some stuff like after all the books are written oh Hermione's actually black when there's you know no indication of it and actually there's descriptive language in the Harry Potter books that Hermione's pale and white right or oh Dumbledore's gay okay well maybe I guess but it was never touched on but it just and so now Neil Gaiman who wrote the original comic and and was totally fine using John Constantine originally now is saying after we already know that it was because of a rights dispute which is totally normal anybody that understands film and tv rights and stuff and it's be a nightmare especially with these massive properties and characters to navigate but then neil gaiman comes out and says no we did it to be diverse well why 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 would you say that i'm actually pretty sure that constantine john constantine in the comics is bisexual so isn't he technically a member of the LGBTQ Z plus exclamation point crowd. Anyway, like, isn't he already diverse in that regard? But then you bring in this woman. It had nothing to do with diversity. It was, it was a decision made on practicality. And I actually think it makes more sense that we have this other female character who kind of fits that same role from a different period in time. Okay, let's bring her in. As opposed to casting another dude to be a different like knockoff, I actually think that makes more sense. But it's not because of diversity. It it seems like it was a practical choice, and now we're just masquerading behind this this attitude about diversity. Uh, that one I thought was kind of silly. Now some of the other characters are switched. Um, Lucian, who is his uh, dream sort of right hand man in the comics, is now a woman. Uh, I think the races are different. Uh, I don't know because I'm rereading them and Lucian isn't super prevalent in the first several issues that I've read. So, um, Death, I already said, was a change. They changed races. You know, stuff like that. I'm like, eh. it just depends. I mean, the actors give a good performance. So in that regard, it doesn't doesn't bother me. And I don't think it's necessarily a huge deal, but but I also don't think it's a huge deal, if you know what I mean. So what I mean is, it doesn't bother me that you necessarily make a switch like that, but also why are you doing it, if not to just try and gain brownie points with people. Your story is strong, and I've said this before, you should not be relying on superficial attributes like race, sex, or ethnicity, yeah, race and ethnicity are kind of the same thing, aren't they? Race or sex, um, or sexual orientation, shall we say. You should not be relying on these skin skin level characteristics to try and get bonus points and get more appeal. I mean, the main character of the Sandman is 
and and an endless a a god who controls dreams okay his sexuality is of very little importance to me but when people shove that stuff in there because they think it's important it should be important and then i'm like well why are you making a big deal about this and like why do you even care well i care because you guys are making it a big deal you you're you're saying that we should care so then i'm asking the question why is the thing i i liked morpheus i identify with morpheus because of certain character aspects and um, you know his character arc a lot of it is about growing less rigid and realizing even though he's been exposed to and kidnapped by some of the worst elements of humanity that not all humanity is that bad and he should be helping and he's here to help them and um, help them help us I am human so I just think that certain things like that when you have just Almost every single character that's in a relationship, you know, not heterosexual. And I'm just like, why are we doing this? Are we doing this because it makes sense to the story? Or is this just the kind of stuff that we need to shove in here? I think it detracts from the believability and the overall strength of the narrative. Because it it then kind of draws you out for a second. And you're... Unless you live in this Hollywood world where you think that this is how the world is. But for most of us when we're watching this stuff, stuff like that where it's like you've got ten couples and nine and a half of them are gay. That's just not reflective for these people that care, that claim to care about accurate representation in things. And representation, like I said earlier about Tolkien and, and uh, talking about like the Rage of Dragon. Representation should be based on where the story takes place. So, if you want to have a diverse cast of characters in this story, which mainly fluctuates between, like, modern America and modern England, yeah, sure. It's not necessarily that strange. But if you... uh, I'm trying to think of something that's not going to offend people, but I'm going to fail. Imagine if, like, Dream only ever interacted with... uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. What, what's like an extremely small minority of people? Imagine if Dream only ever acted with albinos, you know? And you were like... And, and the, the showrunners were like, well, we're just trying to be more inclusive. And, we need, and, you know, there haven't been enough albinos in projects. So we want to be more representative of the diverse culture that we live in. And so we just made all of the side characters that he directly talks to albinos. You'd be like, okay, but... But there are that's that's weird. Like it takes me out of the story because there aren't that many albinos. And why are we making such a big deal about this? It's, it's very strange. I don't know if that's a great example. No offense to anybody that's albino. Um, I'm pretty pale myself, so it's fine. But it just seems to me superfluous nonsense that gets added to the story that didn't need to be to the level that it is. But it is what it is. Overall, I'd recommend The Sandman. Definitely check it out. I try to watch these things that are actually good. Uh, Although, even if certain things are good, you're not shielded from criticisms from me if I think that you're shoving your political uh, side messages in there. Uh, I don't think, you know, people, like, I don't think the message of the show is woke or anything like that. That you're dealing with these sort of primordial beings and uh, big questions of truth and morality right and wrong Uh, I do think that the first five or six episodes are way better than the second half but the second half is still good and I look forward to a potential season two I'm I'm not sure I haven't read yet if it's been greenlit or not 
but hopefully it is. And we'll get to see more of these characters and uh, expand on them further. So that will be it. Go ahead and uh, tune in tomorrow to check out our Sunday special. And that will be the last video that is in this office, I think. So exciting stuff ahead. Um, once again, head on over to Plus 5 Charisma, get yourself a shirt. Go ahead and check out uh, us on Facebook at the Beggar's Cup. You can head on over to my author page, um, author Nick Langan. We got a Patreon, which is uh, Patreon backslash Crowns of Hebron. If you feel generous enough, uh, go over, sign up for the lowest tier. It's like two bucks a month. It's like getting a cup of coffee. It helps me out a lot. The biggest thing you can do, though, is go over to Amazon and check out my books. Uh, Crowns of Hebron is still available right now. That is a family-friendly comic book about David, Jonathan, and Saul before David begins uh, his ascent to kingship. And then uh, Shadow of the Dreamer and Other Oddities, which is a novella collection of short stories about two guys that hunt monsters. So a few people have actually asked me about a follow-up to that. I have the second book of that written. It has been written. It's been proofread by a few people. It's been edited. Uh, I'm just waiting for something else that I can't talk about yet to figure out exactly how we're going to publish that so uh, but it is done um and i look forward to releasing that one which uh features a bunch of stuff that i love including several characters from alice in wonderland so check out our sunday special if you haven't already like and subscribe follow us on the podcast platforms as well and we will see you tomorrow and then next week from the new studio setup